what I was kind of thinking about in terms of that was how uh, many people just wake up to the fact that black people, Latin people, people who are not white, have been going through discrimination. I'm like, wow, what took me so long? Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? <laughs> do now, so cute. Um, so my name is Mark Powers. Mark Powers, I am a, an educator, an, an ELA teacher in, in Chicago, Illinois. My role is um, not just to teach English classes. I also teach a class called AP Seminar, and next year I'm going to teach another part of the capstone program called AP Research. And um, that's a, a, a class that, like all AP classes, focuses on developing um, like soft and hard skills for our students that would be um, necessary for them to thrive in a collegiate environment or even just like in life, you know. It's, it's just good because it's multidisciplinary and, you know, our children, our kids, our students, they think across the, the bandwidth. And so it's easier to be in an AP seminar situation as opposed and feel free that and feel confident that you know, at any point a student will find something that they like as opposed to like trapping them in an English genre or history genre, even though I'd love to do that. But I've got to roll with the audience at this point. And why do Black educators matter? Black educators matter so much. Um, really because we have an affinity for the work. Like we, just like we, just how we're able to code switch, you know, um, we're able to talk to the world and bring the world to our students, to black students, to, to Latino students, you know, to students who are Asian. Like we're able to bring that back with a whole sense of compassion. That's different. That's different from um, people of other cultures. So at the same time, we are able to model um, a lot of an alternate side of life because, I mean, I, I just got to tell you, like when I was growing up, I, I did have like different, I did see adults who were doing different things um, other than just being involved with criminal syndicates, being like on the dole or uh, on welfare, or even though like we were on welfare for a long time. Um, my dad was unemployed. But the thing is, is that as a student at that time, a black, black teachers were looking at me and they could actually kind of see my tics. <laughs> and so they were able to keep me in line and also inspired. So like, granted, we're always teaching subject matter. We're talking about Swabat and students will be able to, you know, meet this objective, which is aligned to, you know, X, Y, and Z. But there's always like some hidden SEL objectives that I have in all my lessons because this is stuff that I, I know I needed at the time and a lot of students need that and, and a lot more just to go back to modeling I like to be able to show that there are so many different ways and so many different choices that you have in life and um, I didn't really realize that until like I was like 16 years old at that point 
So you mentioned SEL and having SEL in your lessons. What is SEL? Social emotional learning. That's um, it's a it's a new thing, but it's something that that uh, black educators have been doing. Um, you know, before we even came to America. So there's and that. Where are you from? I'm from I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Also from Roseville, and also from Queens. So you know, it's just like the outskirts. I never lived in Manhattan. You know, just being in New York and having family who are immigrants, people from the islands, people from uh, St. Martin, Barbados, Nevis, uh, that, that all um, comes, comes along with a certain type of reverence towards education. Um, so that was kind of, it was like weird growing up because like I was, you know, definitely on the American side of the fence, but at the same time, like when you go home, it's like a, a harder message about like, how, you know, I have one job, <laughs> you know, I, even though I had like three, but it's like the main job, yeah. <laughs> at the same time, you're, you're one job, I'm like, I got three, your one job is that you have to um, graduate with honors and be able to, you know, lead a life of dignity with a career. I'm like, I'm 10. <laughs> <laughs> Were you raised in an immigrant community or... Yeah. Okay, so what what were your class, how was your class made up? Like, what was the demographic of your classmates? The demographic of my classmates were, let's see, uh, West Indian. Uh, we have, like, Italians, Polish people, um, people who are Jews, people who are Hebrews. Slight difference, but major. Um, Asians, you know. As I went on in life, when I, as I got older and I moved from New York to D.C., I was around a very strong Ethiopian community in Maryland called they, I mean, there's two different parts of, of the, the DMV area, that the, which is called the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, that has, uh, like, little Ethiopia mm. um, And so one's in Silver Spring, one's, like, on U Street. And that was, like, changing. Yeah. So, like, so for you to grow up as immigrant household, but you're on the more American side, you go to school with a pretty diverse group of classmates, then you had experiences once you left New York where you lived around different populations. How has all of that influenced how you approach your classroom in Chicago in a super gentrified community where most of your students are not from that neighborhood? <laughs> so it's gentrified like when we're coming to school but once we get inside like <laughs> you know it's west side south side so that's what it is and real quick i mean what 95 percent african-american you know there's like a very small asian pop population and then there's a very small hispanic um, or latino pop population as well but having all these different perspectives just kind of like makes me a lot more chill in terms of like Kind of like, oh, okay, I see where you're coming from, even though I agree with you, but I see where you're coming from. That has helped me at least being able to kind of see, like, the commonalities or also understand the differences, you know. Not all the same, trust me. And it's good. Thank God for that. Also, I thought that when I was coming in, so that I was going to be able to have this automatic bond with this predominantly black community. And it's like, what was I thinking? Because, like, basically, there's such a big generation gap between myself and them that that actually wound up being a bigger barrier, <laughs> you know, with the students than I saw with other students had who were closer in age to them. So, mm. like, I had to kind of, like, 
get away from my assumptions real quick. Even though I was around the world and I've been with people around the world, it's just like, it's just like waking up in square one. It was a beautiful thing though, right? So like what made you decide that you wanted to become an educator? Okay, so when I started out, I, I was teaching back in the 90s. So when I was working on a master's degree at Howard University, uh, I started teaching at Howard University as a TA. I also started to um, teach at an all-women's college, college called uh, Mount Vernon College. Um, it's no longer in existence because George Washington bought them out. But I was there for the last three years uh, teaching African-American literature. And then after a while, after that closed, I went on to teach classes about Harlem Renaissance, uh, poetry, and African diaspora literatures at Howard University for about two years. Wow. So what has been your favorite population? Do you like teaching high school or do you prefer teaching college? High school. Uh, strangely enough, I mean, like, I, I knew it was going to happen um, because basically I stopped teaching teaching like around 2003, around the time that my mother died, because I didn't want to be like a scrub teacher who's dealing with, who's in front of students every day, but dealing with something very, very, um, I don't know, like life-changing. When, when my mom died, it was like the sun falling out of the sky. Mm. Like my, my moorings and everything else, I just didn't, my motivation like dropped. And so I just, you know, it was around October that she passed. And so by December, I was like out and I felt good about that. I didn't really go back to teaching until, well, 2016 I was teaching, I was like a, a guest instructor, but then I didn't go back into teaching until 2017. So now that you are back, how do you feel that the classroom has changed from when you first started at Howard University to now where you are as a high school teacher? The state of education in Black America, how has it evolved? How did we get here? And what well, is the state of education in Black America? So it's, it's as critical as ever. Um, I thought that being someone who's teaching, like, right before the edge of the millennium, the pre-2001 era, but, you know, Black America was still suffering, of course, from a lot of police brutality, same, still continuing, redlining, digital divide was, was, was beginning to bloom. And, uh, of course, uh, the fact of segregation, and glass ceilings, a lot, of, a lot of discriminations in hiring policies, and um, unsolved murders, like a lot of unsolved murders, whether it's black-on-black crimes or whether you're talking about, you know, different alt-right organizations that are known now, which were operating then, uh, that were going around killing black people with impunity, between raping women and kidnapping kids, and, you know, hanging and lynching black men and women as well. So as a history teacher and an English teacher, all of these lenses, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question. We've seen these stories before. Like you just said, we've heard about these stories before. It's not new, even though now, because we have technology, we are able to see it in real time. Are there any stories, books, documentaries that you feel are very reminiscent of what we are experiencing right now, like almost like deja vu. I can't help but ask this question as we approach uh, Juneteenth and as we approach the anniversary of the massacre in Oklahoma. Are there any pieces of art or literature that you feel warned us about this time? Let's see. Well, you know, James Baldwin is always like, 
a good go-to if you're talking about the change in scene author as well as like you know Henry Dumas. One piece by James Baldwin that I always love to teach is called Going to Meet the Man. It's written from the perspective of a white supremacist who wakes up in bed and he finds that he can't he's impotent he can't get it up for his wife and then what happens is that he goes across town and he starts sleeping with a black woman and so he's having the same problem there and so he's like what's going on and so he thinks about his life and how he was in a place where he saw a black man get lynched and how the whole community gathered around this man who was lynched and he was putting into he was put into a fire and they were able to have keepsakes of finger toes and and from that point on, he gets, you know, hard and then he's able to be potent and he's able to um, have sex with uh, the black woman, whether it's his side lover or a prostitute, I can't remember. That allegory, you know, like hangs up there because I always have to kind of think, when I was looking at um, the recent uh, video, which definitely triggered me, we were talking about George Floyd and he's there and you saw the man standing on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. It looked like he was getting off on that. Mm. It really did. It looked like he was a sadistic person who was feeling the, the potency of power. And, you know, the fact that he stayed on his neck two, two hours, two minutes after he died meant that he kind of felt like his life go away, you know? So that's like one of the eternal um, stories that James Baldwin has created. One of my favorite authors named uh, Henry Dumas wrote this um, very powerful story called Little Circle Being Broken in Archibones. Archibones is kind of too long for me to talk about right now, but definitely check it out. Little Circle Being Broken has um, this place. It's kind of like Smalls in New York. It was well, the way it used to be. It was basically an after-hour jam session that went from 10 to 2 in the morning, except in Harlem. And basically, this is where like people like Coltrane would sit in circle, and many people from Harlem would come down and they would sit in a circle as well, as all these different musicians would leave their paid gigs and come to this place, sit in a circle and play music, right? And so the thing is, is that it's a place where white people can't go because the music is too, is too strong. And so even though the music of jazz is, is communal and it spreads to people, it spreads across the world, this particular sanctum is where the kind of music comes from and it comes from a very deep sphere and as we know john coltrane such a soulful man and such an amazing seer him and and alice i mean did you ever hear her heart um her heart concertos and like her heart comp- compositions man, she's like anyway so getting back to the story what happens is is that the m um a couple of journalists hear about this, about the, about the spot, and of course they come in mm-hmm. and they sit in the circle. What happens is, is that, gosh, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the, the figure that let's just say it's, it's, it's John Coltrane. It's, it's definitely inspired by, by Train, and so he's playing, and he there is like this moment where the frequencies and the vibes, like from the point of inception, you know, because like in the beginning was the word and, and the word was the sound and from this sound came the universe. And so that's going along. And so since these people were very um, adamant about getting in there and even used the influence of the police to stay there, they were not invited, but yet they were part of the circle. Mm-hmm. At the end of the song, the whole community that's there 
is inspired is able to stand up and, and leave as, you know, with the inspiration of it. But then they look to the left and the, the two white people who came in who forced their way into there are sitting there. They're not getting up. And it turns out that it was, the sound was just too heavy and it just it ripped them apart. Mm. And they passed away. What I was kind of thinking about in terms of that was how um, many people just wake up to the fact that black people, Latin people, people, who are not white, have been going through discrimination. I'm like, wow, what took you so long? I mean, did it really take you a video, that video for you to see, like, what was going on? You don't have any friends. You don't have any neighbors. You can't. I mean, all of the different people who have passed, you know, who have been, I don't say passed, we were murdered. Murdered, yeah. You know, by people who are supposed to protect, by the protect and serve institutions of the law. This is just one of many stories, and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. Why do you think these stories don't end up being shared in the curriculum? Like, how come when these stories are written, it's under the guise of a fictional novel instead of being documented in the history books and taught? Oh, uh, well, this is, this is my point about it. And it's probably, it's a perspective. Don't agree with it at all. I think that fiction is history. I think that when you look at the hieroglyphs of Osar, of Osset, otherwise known as Isis and Osiris, and that's just, you know, part of the pantheon. I'm not going to say that Kemet or Egypt is the center of it, but it's part of it because of the material culture has been allowed to survive. There's many unspoken gods and goddesses who we don't know of or who are underspoken because of the fact that it's not material culture backing up. Okay, I made that aside. So, for example, <laughs> when we look at the the stories, right, of Osar and Set and Set, right? So Set is Set and Osar, they are they're brothers, right? So it's a tale of two brothers, one lives north, one lives south, and one is able to raise their crops, and the other person just takes the crops and they tear from the ground from the roots and they kill all their animals, right? And then at the end become jealous of the other brother and they wind up killing, killing Osar. Osar was cut up into 13 pieces. They throw his ballast into the river, and then um, it takes somebody like Osset. So Osset, who is, um, you know, like Isis, for all intents and purposes, to uh, re- bring back the pieces of the man and regenerate him, and was able to put his ballast, find, found his ballast, and so the 13th piece of the body came onto the 12th Osmasonic tube. Uh, what they call the sun. And so from that point on, like, she was able to regenerate and, and um, the essence of of uh, the slain Osar and give birth to Heru, right? And Heru is known is the basic root of the word hero, right? We're always talking about heroes and anti-heroes. So, yeah, we see where that linguistically came from, even though there's a whole rack of stuff that, or a whole rack of, like, pantheons, you know, that's around that, but we're just talking about like what has survived in our language. 
the hero concept, he comes, he is able, Haru is able with his life to um, basically avenge the death of his father and to set and to restore uh, life uh, and, and just, well, and justice with the assistance of other people of the Pantheon, Mayat, Hathor, you know, because one person doesn't do it alone, right? And so that's how the hero story is different. It's more of like, an Avengers type of thing than Iron Man saying being the day, you know, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes. Uh, so the reason why I think, getting back to your question, you were just like, well, how come we don't really think about this as history? I'm like, it is history. I, I just think that it's not, we have to talk talk about um, stories as, as allegories, right? And how there's a historical truth, there's all these different layers. There's a historical truth to it, there's an allegorical truth to it, um, there's a theme that, you know, that, that kind of carries across the ages. And uh, we just have to be really conscious about the power of our stories, and um, I'm, I'm really glad to be here because I'm learning how to teach them, finally. <laughs> you know, I'm like fi- about to turn 50, and uh, I've been in love with these stories since I was... I came upon them. Well, no, I didn't come upon them. They were revealed to me by um, Otis, Otis Williams of, of the Nibiru Cultural Center at University of Maryland, um, introduced me to Henry Dumas. And then from that point on, I met like Ellen Trailer, and he taught at the Howard University's Department of English and retired recently. Excellent scholar. You mentioned the power of like your stories. As you think about all of the opportunities that you've had across classrooms, across the country, how have you grown the most as an educator? Excellent question. I've grown the most as an educator by learning how to, how to teach and how to pass on information or share, not really Pass on. It's really sharing because what happens is, is that just as I'm teaching, as I'm teaching the students, the students wind up teaching me because they see something I don't see, or I get inspired by how they're talking about the material. And you know, like the circle is not a, not unbroken, right? <laughs> so um, you know, I've, I've by understanding, by being able to teach across that that generation gap, you know, it's through a line that's as long as a generation gap that's known as some sort of I don't know, empathy, connection, affinity. And then at the same time, you know, having teaching coaches like, you know, Brittany Kroon and, um, you know, Dina helped me figure out like, okay, so what are the different ways that students learn? That's, that's been, that's been a big push for this year. Uh, so yeah, it's good to be in the classroom, but you know, sometimes it's not enough. You have to understand how to impart knowledge and to, be able to chunk things up, especially for me being a college professor coming to teach high schools. But, and at the same time, there's a generation gap because I think, I'm not going to say that my generation was smarter than this generation. What I said, what I will say though, is that we read more intensely. It seems like, it seems like this generation reads like across different bandwidths and they have a different learning style. Yeah. Um, and they're quicker in some aspects. So like for them, I show them like a book, like, native son they're going to scream i'm like i read this like in in high school like why are you screaming <laughs> you know and we did this in in two months but it's 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 a different world but it doesn't mean that students are less brilliant than we were they're just brilliant in a different in a different way it is such a different world uh i agree i always 
stand up and represent for the millennials. But as a millennial, it is so interesting and easy to observe the different generations and how they operate. And it's true. In previous generations, voracious readers. Encyclopedias. We don't even have encyclopedias. Because, you know, we consume information in different ways. Like, it's not static. You know, like, we can scroll. And they can consume and interpret information in different ways visually. Like, the way that they can put together some of these montages and it, it is fascinating, and I, I do love to watch when the generations come together and share that knowledge and connect over something. Has there been a piece that you found your students have fallen in love with over time? Like, is there a certain poem or author that when you introduce it to your classes, they kind of get a clicky moment? Like, I get that person, or I get that story. Strangely enough, um, well... I wasn't surprised when, when students were in love with Maya, Maya Angelou because, like, you have to sing her her uh, her poetry or her lyricism uh, for it to be read. And there's a melody that she has that's very, um, I don't know, it's, it's just an earworm. It just sticks with you. And it's very interesting how that cadence is automatically picked up by, um, by the young and so by our students. And it's, it's just... It's just great to see hear to see them talk about or hear them read. I don't know. It's just like there's so many different Maya Angelou poems I've taught. The short story that um, that the youngins seem to have picked up on, and I and it wasn't the one I thought it was going to be. It was, it's um the woman in the window. It's about this woman who has to uh, who's a, who's a cook and find, and she finds herself unemployed uh, because of the of depression. And there's like this restaurant that opens up that wants to celebrate the cooking of the South, but they want the chef instead of cooking in the back to cook in the window. And so to do that, she'd have to put on like a, a turban, you know, like a head wrap, handkerchief wrap, and dress like Manny. And so she was like, I ain't gonna do that. But then a couple of bills become due. And then so she's like, okay, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> She'll do that for her kids. And what happens is that her kids walk by one time and they see her in the window and they feel like ashamed. And, and those kids are being taunted by the, by the white kids who know that that's their mother. And so they run home. And so she had, she goes home and she has a very, very compassionate discussion with them, which acknowledges like, okay, you may feel this way, but you have to understand I do what I do for you. I am not a mammy, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, <laughs> you know, for us. And, you know, you ain't gonna be no man. So, mm. I, so that's the that's the whole. There's a lot of other things going on there too. So it's just a good, it's just an excellent story. Um, so definitely check out the woman in the window. I definitely related to that. Like listening to you because it's it is easy to connect with any person. It you know mm-hmm. the woman or the children. You can empathize with both. Thank you for sharing all of these authors and stories i'm definitely going to look them up myself because you are right the power of our stories and our story serving as history is critical especially when it comes to sharing across generations are there any black educators that you would like to thank any black educators that went out of their way to aid in your success a couple of them um i'm just start off with eleanor trailer 
aka Diva. It's very interesting. Um, we have such a, a, a long history together. So she was the chair of the English department and I was there working on my master's um, in 19, from 1992 to 1996. And she wound up being, well, being the director of my master's thesis committee. I'm telling you, like, having a mentor who you work with on writing and also teaches you so much about life. And this goes back to modeling, right? Um, show, don't show, don't show me, tell me. And so she kind of like being in her house, going over edits. And then at the same time, because I was a mentee, all of a sudden I have to work with her on her scholarship and her articles. And then, you know, doing different things like, you know, raking the yard. And no, she's like pledging me really like hard, <laughs> like, Doing, doing yard work and everything and driving around getting some groceries and I need to do this. And so you do all these different things with somebody. But what happens is, is that you see the life of a scholar, right? You see the life of somebody who wakes up and has this instinct to live. And, you know, she's like in her late 80s. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she still wakes up with that internal question that she wants to ask, right? So basically teachers who are teachers for life, right? Always wake up with a question that drives them to figure out something else. And she always has some really good questions. I mean, gosh, I'm talking about somebody who was office mates with Tony Morrison, but this is the frequency that I was around. And so therefore it's just always to be around an educator is to be around somebody who pushes your thoughts. and. So, yeah, you have these objectives and you have to, on one hand, conform to being on the high end of blooms, but then to even be further than that, you know? Because once you once you connect with that ancestral knowledge and you bring it further, I mean, you know, blooms is behind you. It just is. It's just like... Shout out to all of the educators that will see us and who we are and help us to connect to that ancestral knowledge and to provide those stories. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Mr. Powers, and thank you for pouring your knowledge into students across the country, across across the globe, because we are in a digital world now. So yeah. everything that you have done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a Black teacher today.